we have uh, been discussing the Lamrim, and the Lamrim is a, a scheme for organizing the basic sutra teachings, and we have seen that it is referring to Lam, that's translated as path, refers to states of mind which will act as a pathway for leading to a goal, and they are progressive, like rungs of a ladder. Let me correct that, they're not like rungs of a ladder, they're like the stories of a building. A rung of a ladder, when you go to the next one, you leave the lower one, but it's not like that. It's not progressive like rungs of a ladder, but rather these are progressive like the stories of a building, that each story of the building rests on the lower stories. So when you are on a higher story, let's say the third story, in fact you are on a foundation of the first, second, and third stories. So we have all of them. And so we have three scopes here, and the three scopes are the pathway lines that will lead to the rebirth, to liberation from all uncontrollably recurring rebirth, which will lead to enlightenment. And enlightenment refers to having the ability to help lead everybody to overcome uncontrollably recurring rebirth. And all of these, then, are built on the assumption of rebirth. Rebirth meaning individual mental continuums that have no beginning and no end. And all of these, then, are built on the assumption of rebirth. Rebirth meaning individual mental continuums that have no beginning and no end. And we have seen that many of us, particularly in the West, follow a Dharma light version of Ramrim. And Dharma light is aimed at using the methods of Dharma as contained within the Ramrim, basically to help improve this lifetime. And as I mentioned, Dharma light by itself is not able to bring us to enlightenment, just as the initial and intermediate scopes by themselves are not able to bring us to enlightenment. But if we follow Dharma light with the intention, first of all, with acknowledgement that we need the three scopes, and with respect for that, and with the intention to try to go beyond Dharma light, and eventually, when we're ready, to develop ourselves through the three scopes, and eventually uh, work to achieve enlightenment. And so we're following the Dharma light as a stepping stone on the way to the full path to enlightenment, and this is perfectly fine. That doesn't mean that following Dharma light not within this context is uh, useless definitely is useful, but it's going to be far more powerful in terms of an actual Buddhist method if we follow it as a stepping stone to the higher stages. Also, we mentioned how the Lamra material is the type of material that we need to go over and over and over again. And as we learn more of the teachings of the Dharma, then we need to go back and connect them to all the various points of the Lamrim, because all the different points of Dharma network with each other and reinforce each other, so we'll gain more depth in our understanding and our development if we follow this procedure. Also, if we try to incorporate the motivating emotion of the advanced scope, 
In other words, compassion, love and compassion for everyone, and use this as the driving force for our development of all these graduated stages and, in a sense, supplement the motivating emotion that's there specified in the teachings of that scope, then our whole practice will fit within the realm or sphere of Mahayana practice. I wouldn't call this grand compassion or great compassion. Just compassion. Why? Because, well, compassion in general is the wish for others to be free of the suffering and the causes for suffering. Now, great compassion is wishing them to be free from the deepest type of suffering, the all-encompassing, affecting suffering from having these recurring aggregates. And it's great and vast in the sense that it is equally extended to absolutely every limited being. Well, that's asking a bit too much for being the context of our whole development. So just compassion, the wish for others to be free from their suffering and the causes for it will be sufficient here. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> now, we have discussed yesterday how to become a person of initial scope motivation. And it's not just a matter of studying the various contents of the teachings concerning this, <laughs> or even uh, memorizing and learning all the lists that are involved, but it actually means to transform ourselves completely into someone like this. And when we speak about full transformation of ourselves, I think we can understand this from the way in which this is described regarding having a bodhicitta aim. In the first chapter of Shantideva's engaging in bodhisattva behavior, Bodhicharya Shanti Deva mentions quite strongly that once we have developed bodhicitta, bodhicitta aim, then whether day or night or even if we are intoxicated, that still the positive force grows more and more. Now, this is not referring to actually the first moment that we develop bodhicitta, but it is when we develop what's called unlabored bodhicitta. You don't have to put any work into it. What this is referring to is normally, in order to have this bodhicitta aim, initially what we have to do is go through all the stages of building up to that aim. In other words, going through the seven-part cause and effect meditation or the equalizing and exchanging self or others like that. We need to labor into it, work into it Mm -hmm. to build it up. And here, what we're talking about is when that's not necessary, Mm -hmm. when it's just there Mm -hmm. all the time. So we don't have to go through all the stages to build it up. In the presentation of the five paths leading to either arhatship or Buddhahood, These are talking about five pathway lines, not paths. The first of these, it's usually translated as the path of accumulation, which I don't like that translation. It's a building up pathway mind. We build up basically shamatha with this uh, pathway mind. The Mahayana form of it is attained. So you attain the first pathway mind when you have unlabored bodhicitta. That's when it all starts in terms of the presentation of these so-called paths and stages. Let me make my statement a little bit more specific. It's not that we're building up shamatha just by itself. We're building up a combined shamatha and vipassana focused on the 16 aspects of the Four Noble Truths. If we want to simplify it, focused on voidness. Okay, so unlabored bodhicitta means that we have this general aim 
is underlying our whole mental continuum all the time. This is the main focus of our lives. We don't have to remind ourselves of it. We don't have to go through the seven-part cause and effect or anything like that to build it back up again. It's there all the time. This is what Shantideva is referring to. In Western terminology, we would say that the bodhicitta aim doesn't have to be conscious. It's unconsciously there all the time, even when we're asleep. So, similarly, by extension, we could say when we really have become an authentic person of each of these scopes, let's say aiming for improving future lives, ensuring that we continue to have a precious human rebirth, what we're really aiming for is to have that unlabored, that we don't have to go through all the steps in the meditations of the precious human rebirth and death and impermanence and lower realms and refuge and karma, that we just have this in an unlabored manner, this aim all the time, even when it's not conscious. So this is no small accomplishment. This is what I was referring to in terms of having these motivations fully, fully integrated. And it doesn't exclude taking care of our affairs of this lifetime, but that's not our major focus. And to reach this level of initial scope, then we have to be totally convinced, no doubts at all, about that there are going to be future reapers and that it is going to be affected by karma and that I better do something about it and I can do something about it to ensure that I continue to have better rebirths. So we have to be totally convinced of this. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't work further on the path before we've reached this full level of being an initial scope person. Right? Reach a certain level in the development of this initial scope when we still have to build it up going through the procedures of meditation and so on, that's fine. And this can be even before we have total conviction in uh, rebirth. What we're doing is saying, well, I'm not totally convinced, but I'm you know, going in that direction, and my indecisive wavering is more in that direction. Mm-hmm. And so I give it the benefit of the doubt, and then let's go on from there. However, if we are at this stage where it's not totally integrated, and we are going on to the uh, further steps... This means that we still have a lot of work to do on the initial scope. And so that's why I said you have to go back over and over and over again on these various stages. As it says in Texture Vows, even we can extend it to here. Don't be satisfied with what we have achieved so far if you haven't gotten the real thing. Okay, now, intermediate scope. Intermediate scope is even more difficult and profound than the initial scope. Here we are aiming for overcoming uncontrollably recurring rebirth altogether. We need to think about it. If we are sincerely someone of initial scope motivation, it is very, very easy and quite natural to be attached to a precious human rebirth. May I continue to have a precious human rebirth May I continue to be with all my friends and all my Dharma companions and with my guru and have all the wonderful circumstances and so on. Very attached. That is very tough to <laughs> overcome that attachment and to I'll... understand what it means to have renunciation. Because we, we think we're attached and may I have good health. 
and a young, strong, healthy body, and a good mind, and all these things. Very, very attached to these things. And so, what does this intermediate scope mean? That I don't want any of that anymore? I want to become a liberated being, an arhat? What in the world does that mean? Does that mean I'm never going to see my friends again? Right? I mean, it's, it's very, very difficult to have even a conception of what it would be to be a liberated being. So it's very difficult to go beyond the wish for continuing to have better rebirths, and precious human rebirths, with friends and wealth and circumstances, and living a peaceful time, and everything's so wonderful, etc. And I'm talking about the Dharma things. How about being attached to the worldly things? You know, and I'll be young, and I'll fall in love again, and all these sort of pleasures. Especially as we become older in this lifetime, and we think how wonderful it would be to have, you know, all my senses, see better, hear better, have more energy, be more attractive to other people. If I were young again, so our wish for a precious human rebirth becomes very much mixed with a wish to be young again. So, these are the things, if if you're looking at this intermediate scope seriously, that we have to consider and work with. And I I must admit that this is a really difficult step. I can quote Chip, it's even more difficult. (laughs) I think you know, I want to liberate every being that currently is reborn as an insect. You know, come on. Don't be sincere about that. Okay, so where do we even start to work on this? This is not an easy question. I must say I'm a little bit, what should we say, not decisive in terms of what would be the best order of the issues that we need to work on. I suppose one of the more perplexing issues here is what would it be like to be a liberated being, to be an arhat? Yeah, if that's what I'm aiming to be, it would be really nice to have a clear idea of what I'm getting myself into if I become an arhat. <laughs> okay, now there are many different types of assertions concerning what is an arhat, depending on the school of tenets in India, of the Indian Buddhist schools. We are following a Mahayana path here, so we do not accept any of the Hinayana assertions, which is that after you become an arhat and you die, then your mental continuum ends. So that's not our conception of an, of an arhat. So, as a liberated being, as an arhat, first of all, there are two types. We're not talking here about the Shravaka and Prateka Buddha types. Let's discount that for our consideration. But within arhats, there are two types. There's uh, an arhat who becomes a liberated being, was aiming to become a liberated being, and after becoming a liberated being, only then eventually develops bodhicitta and goes on to uh, continue the bodhisattva path. That's one type. And then there are those uh, arhats, they're called arhats with definite lineage, which means that way before becoming an arhat, they developed bodhicitta and they were aiming to become a Buddha, and they achieved arhatship on the way to Buddhahood. So if we look first at these first type, let's call them hinayana type uh, arhats, after they die, then their mental continuum continues in a pure realm. And those who are of definite lineage 
can continue either in a pure realm or they can manifest in our ordinary planes of existence. Now, they have overcome samsaric existence, uncontrollably recurring rebirth, both. This word uncontrollable, by the way, doesn't imply that the opposite, that one can control it. So it's not the best choice of words. That word control is referring to the word power. And so it's rebirth under the power of disturbing emotions and karma. So when one becomes a liberated being, one no longer will have what's called obtainer aggregates. Aggregates that have been obtained through the power of disturbing emotions and karma. This is referring to after they die, right? Through the mechanism of the 12 links of dependent arising. But they will continue to have aggregates, you know, body and mind, but not obtained from karma and disturbing emotions. And so they won't be mixed with karma and disturbing emotions. So, I mean, the body of an arhat will be made of subtle elements. Elements, in, from the Buddhist point of view, are earth, water, fire, and wind. So solid, liquid, gas, and energy. And these subtle elements in a pure realm will be something which is visible to the eyes of other arhats, and to their own eyes, but won't be visible to us ordinary humans, for example. And so another name for this type of elements, this type of body, is called a mental body, right? But not like, you know, in a dream or something like that. It's more similar to the type of body that beings on the plane of ethereal forms, the so-called form realm, have. So, and then they would stay like that in a pure realm, and there's no, it's not as though they were born there, they sort of here, there, and they would have no sickness, old age, or death. Right? They go on forever. And so they can either just stay there in what's called the extreme of complacency, continuing to meditate on voidness, to meditate, etc. Or they can develop bodhicitta there and continue in a pure realm studying and practicing Mahayana or manifesting our ordinary realms. But for us following a Lamrim, graded stages, a Mahayana path, graded stages, a Mahayana path, we don't want to hang out in a pure land. Now, of course, there are practices that we find in Tantra for a transference of consciousness to a pure land and so on. Because as a bodhisattva in a pure land, we have no distractions. And so you, you know, decide that you hang out and have a good time in a pure land. But uh, you spend 24 hours a day, you know, forever practicing, studying and practicing. In a pure land, as a bodhisattva. So we could either do that as an arhat, as bodhisattva arhat, or, you know, one can manifest in this world and continue to try to help others. And of course there are, perhaps I suppose, it's a personal disposition or temperament. You know, do you want to do intensive type of practice in a pure land, or are you really more drawn to actually trying to help people as much as possible at our levels. Right now. Just what you think. Those who practice 24 hours a day in a pure land, isn't it uh, in order to achieve Buddhahood quicker? Yes. Ah, okay. Right. I mean, that's okay. the point. Yes. To yeah, practice point. in a okay. pure land 24 hours yes. uh, a day, forever, with the intention that then I will be able to achieve Buddhahood 
more quickly. Yes. So this is a, I mean, this is an interesting question for yes. debate. Where do you build up more positive force mm-hmm. in a pure land studying, mm-hmm. or here in our world trying to help others? Okay. And that's a point of debate. Okay, so we're aiming to be a Mahayana Arhat, Bodhisattva Arhat. Now, get to a difficult point to understand. When we, as an Arhat, subtle elements of uh, of body manifest in the ordinary world, then what is happening is that there is a connection with the gross elements of the sperm and egg of the parents. Similar to a Buddha manifests or emanates in this world. Now, this is not a Hindu concept of a soul or some sort of material subtle body coming and entering into the gross elements of the sperm and egg. Esto no. Or that it is a separate thing that is using it, using this uh, grosser body. No se trata como de una or cosa. owns it or possesses it or anything like that. So, the same type of voidness analysis that we use in terms of the relation of the self or me with the uh, aggregates we apply here. So, without going into detail here, because we don't have time, this can be filled in later in your classes. What we would say is that just as the self, the me, can be imputed on the basis of the gross elements of the body, etc., similarly, the subtle elements of the body of an arhat or a Buddha can be imputed on the basis of the gross elements of the sperm and egg of the parents. And what is being imputed is not identical to the basis for imputation. And what is being imputed is not identical to the basis for imputation. This is very much discussed in the analysis of voidness. So, the gross elements of the body, the basis of imputation, they are subject to birth, sickness, old age, and death but not the subtle elements of the body of the Arhat or the Buddha. Así they are liberated from that. So, <laughs> in a sense, we're not going off and leaving our gurus and leaving our friends and so on when we become a liberated being because we're not aiming to hang out in some pure land. We just not do very much. Enjoy the peace of nirvana, it's called. So, ah, we not. will still be able to be associated with the guru and the friends ah, okay. and so on, okay. all these things, but obviously without attachment. Okay, so, a little bit of an idea of what we're talking about. When we speak about tainted and untainted aggregates, usually translated as contaminated and uncontaminated, terrible expression, that's speaking about something else. According to the Guluk Prasangika, explanation and definition of tainted and untainted. Tainted aggregates are those that produce an appearance of truly established existence, and untainted are those that do not produce such an appearance. So, when an arhat is totally absorbed on voidness, and the mind is not producing an appearance of truly established existence, at that time, the aggregates of the arhat are untainted. In the subsequent attainment periods, in other words, subsequent to absorption on voidness, uh, whether you're still in meditation on something else or not in meditation, then the mind does produce an appearance of truly established existence. At that time, the aggregates of an arhat are tainted. 
So arhats sometimes have tainted aggregates, sometimes untainted aggregates. If we speak just in general, so we were saying, whereas a Buddha only has untainted aggregates, in other words, a Buddha is always totally absorbed, voidness. So there's a difference between the subtle elements of the body of a Buddha and the subtle elements of the body of an arhat. Even though both, when in this uh, world, are imputed on the basis of the gross elements of the body of the parents, of the sperm and egg of the parents. So, this is a lot of information, and perhaps information that you're not familiar with. However, if we start to work with this and try to figure out what in the world does this mean, okay, I'm a liberated being. This is what I'm aiming for as a liberated being. I want to continue on the bodhisattva path. So, let's say I want to continue working here, benefiting others. So, I will continue to manifest in this world. Undoubtedly, it's not in terms of, you know, here's a list of possible parents, and I'll choose one, and now it's under my control where I'm going to be reborn. But undoubtedly, for many, many factors dependently arising, then there will be the connection between my arhat subtle elements and the gross elements of the sperm and egg of a couple. Now, gross elements, of course, are subject to all the laws of impermanence, etc. And so the gross elements themselves, of course, are going to develop. They're going to sometimes get faults or sickness. They're going to wear out, and they're going to end having the capacity to be a basis for my mind. Entonces, desde luego. They are subject to physical laws. So, although those gross elements are subject to the laws of physics, they are not subject to the laws of karma. What happens with them is not under the power of disturbing emotions and karma. It's just under the power of general physical laws. But my subtle body is not going to be subject to death, sickness, old age, and death. And as an arhat, I will not experience anything that happens with the grosser elements with any of the three types of suffering. Suffering of unhappiness, suffering of our ordinary happiness, and the all-encompassing suffering. Everything I will experience either with happiness, which is not our ordinary happiness mixed with grasping for true existence, or with equanimity, similarly not mixed with grasping for true existence and attachment. Because as an arhat, we could be absorbed in some of these higher planes or levels of mental constancy, which there's only equanimity. Right? As a Buddha, we would have only happiness. And with any of the disturbing emotions, etc. Described in tantra in terms of blissful awareness, etc. Okay, now I've spent a great deal of time, and we don't have a great deal of time, on describing what it would be like to be an arhat. I uh, have spent this amount of time because I must say, since I'm explaining a little bit in terms of my own personal experience working with this material, that this was one of the big blocks in terms of really considering seriously the intermediate scope. Because, you know, okay, you give up some sorrow, but then what? And without a clearer idea of then what, it's very hard to say, well, I want to get rid of some sorrow. Okay, let's take a few minutes to digest what we have covered.
one point of clarification is that the subtle body of an arhat is not the same as the subtle bodies of the Buddha. Physical bodies of the Buddha we should confuse the two. The subtle bodies of the Buddha, what's called Nirmanakaya and Sambhogakaya, are far more subtle than the so-called mental body of an arhat, but the manner in which they are imputed on the gross elements of a mother and father is the same. Just what happens? Not what happens. Okay. Who we okay. meet, yes. you know, oh, yes. I yes. drive yes. my car yes. and yes. somebody yes. runs in front mm-hmm. of it and I kick them. Mm-hmm. Well, that is happening as a result of my karma and their karma, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. just my karma. Ah. Whereas what happens to us when we are arhats or buddhas, let's say the various people that we meet, that mm-hmm. we're going to try to help. Now, mind you, we're talking about the bodhisattva arhat. Mm-hmm. This is uh, our uh, focus here. Mm-hmm is going to be the result of, from our side, our compassion and our prayers to be able to benefit everyone and, on the side of the others, from their karma. So it's not a result of our own karma. It's a result of what's influencing here is our wish to benefit everybody. That's why we do these Mahayana practices of visualizing innumerable number of beings around us in order to try to establish that connection with innumerable beings, so that as a result of our prayer and our compassion, then that will be one factor in combination with the karma of the others for us to meet them and have a positive influence on them. So when we, as a bodhisattva arhat or a Buddha, interact with somebody and meet somebody, we're not going to have any disturbing emotions for that person. We're going to have, you know, no attachment, no desire or hostility or anything like that. Whereas the other person, from their side, since they're meeting us as a result of karma, among other factors, then they could have attachment to us, they could be hostile to us, etc. But we would have just complete compassion, equal attitudes toward everybody, etc. So the form of the interaction, the dynamics of it, would be quite different from our side and from their side. Okay, so this fills out a little bit more the picture of what it is that we're aiming for with this intermediate scope, and we've dealt a little bit with what we're aiming for with the advanced scope as well. This, I think, is very, very helpful for taking seriously wanting to develop ourselves to be persons of intermediate and in advanced scopes. You know what we're aiming for more clearly.